0: Now, Father, we come as those who are convinced that the resurrection is a promise of future grace for which we long and which we understand too little of, and we long for you to teach us, to fill us with your truth, and to so move in our hearts by your truth that we would see the need to make Changes in our lives that are appropriate to the doctrine of the resurrection. O Father, speak to us today. Give us eyes to see our own lives and hearts that are sensitive to your spirit as you move in our midst and in us as individuals. May you be glorified in the holiness, the holy joy that I trust will result in our meditating on these things. And so we ask you, Father, to do a wonderful work in our lives this morning as a result of listening to the truth of your word. Protect us from error, I pray, Lord, and fill us with the truth, fill us with your spirit, and with the desire to minister to one another sacrificially. And Lord, all of these things we pray by the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. We are still in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, First Corinthians 15, if you could turn there, and today... I want you to imagine that you're being interviewed, perhaps after the service, by a reporter who wants to talk to you because you have a reputation of being a devout Christian. And the first question that he is going to ask you today is this. What if you come to the end of your life only to discover that there is no God and no life after death? What then? How would you respond? If there is no resurrection... Does your life make sense anyway? In his book, Desiring God, John Piper tells the story of a Cistercian abbot who was interviewed on Italian television. The interviewer was especially interested in the Cistercian tradition of living in silence and solitude, so he asked the abbot a very similar question. He said, And what if you were to realize at the end of your life that atheism is true, that there is no God. Tell me, what if that were true? And the abbot simply replied, Holiness, silence, and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves. Without promise of reward, I still will have used my life well. Now that is a beautiful sentiment if there ever was one. But if we were to ask the Apostle Paul that same question, his answer would be absolutely the opposite of this Catholic abbot. The interviewer asked, what if, your, what if your way of life turns out to be based on falsehood and there is no God? And the abbot's answer, in essence, was, it was a good and noble life anyway. Paul, however, you ask him that question, 1 Corinthians 15, 19 is his answer, quote, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why was there such a massive gulf? Why was there such a massive difference of response between the abbot and the apostle Paul? Was it not because the promise of resurrection caused Paul to make decisions about how he would live his life that made no sense apart from the resurrection? We might say that there was no difference between Paul's formal theology and his functional theology. They were, in fact, the same. You look at his life and you just have to conclude, this guy's not living like everybody else. His life is remarkably different. His hope is not in immediate comfort and pleasure, but in eternal reward. And that's a huge difference. In fact, Paul says as much in his letter to the Romans. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. What was the object of his hope? Paul's belief in the resurrection is explained, explains the way he lived. Romans 5, 3 through 4. He says, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, what? Hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We exult in our tribulations. We are not afraid to suffer. We don't shy away from suffering for Christ's sake. Why? Because our hope is not in this life. It's not in this life. By contrast, the lack of belief in the resurrection explains the lives of the members of Corinth, how they lived in a way that was practically indistinguishable from the way the people in their community, the unbelievers in their community lived. Their lives, the believers' lives in the church, the professing believers in the church, and the people in the world around them, practically no distinction between they lived their, the way they lived their lives. In our text today, Paul explains the futility of religious devotion and sacrifice if there is no resurrection. And by doing so, he challenges us to examine our own lives to determine whether the theology that we claim to believe is actually making an, an impact on the way we live. And so, this is an important text for us. And let's stand and read it together. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 34. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 34. Just follow along now as I read. Paul says. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does that profit me? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. If you're taking notes this morning, number one, here we go. The evidence of a strong faith in the resurrection. Evidence of a strong faith in the resurrection. And the point of these first four verses is to demonstrate the obvious truth that a belief in resurrection should have an impact on the way that we live, very practically, today, this Sunday afternoon. Now, admittedly, this first evidence from this first verse, verse 29, is a little bit different to, difficult to get our minds wrapped around. In fact, it's very difficult. And Paul says, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they baptized for them? Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are saying, in your minds, uh, that's the strangest verse I've ever seen in the Bible. Um, and others of you are saying, I didn't even know this was in the Bible. What in the world does that mean? Um, that's the question, what does this verse mean? And frankly, this is a very rare occasion where I have to admit to you, I don't have a clue what this means. And neither does anybody else I've read. And believe me, I have read on this passage. There are a lot of different theories about it. Um, but let me tell you a couple of things. The most important question here is relative to, obviously, what the passage means. And um, while we don't know what it means, we know what it can't mean. We know that he can't be talking about Christians being baptized for someone who's already dead to try to keep them from hell or to spring them from hell. The Mormons teach that. Other cults teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. You've got to be really, really careful about establishing any doctrine on one verse. There is no other place in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, that talks about people being baptized for the dead in order to spring them from hell or to keep them from going there. It's just not a biblical teaching. Now, there are a couple of possibilities And whenever you translate a text, you're going to lose something. So I assume we've lost something here, either in the culture or in the translation, and I'll show you why. First, here's the first viable option that I think is worthy of considering. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I don't think the options are all that important. The first is that Paul is drawing their attention to the fact that even those who are involved in the pagan mystery cults believe in resurrection, they're not Christians. They've got their own cultic religion that's very popular in their day and in their culture. This is Greece, after all. That's why why they baptized for the dead. It was just part of their cultic religion. But they believed in resurrection, even an unbeliever. The second option that many conservative scholars embrace is the idea that Paul is referring to people who have become Christians because of the testimony of, Of those who have died. In other words, the person who has died, they are the dead person. And it's interesting that Paul does talk about um, uh, believers who are asleep in this passage, those who have who are asleep or who have died before us. So this may be what they're talking about, what he's talking about. That those who have died before us, some of them, their testimony was so compelling. And a desire to be where they are or follow their example was so strong that, that some were coming to faith in Christ as a result of their testimony. I've known people like this. My grandfather, I'll talk about him later. My grandfather was the godliest man I ever have known in my life, I think. He didn't share all of my theology, but oh, uh, maybe I don't share in all of his godliness. He was an extraordinary Man of God. And um, every time I think about him, it humbles me. But he died when I was a teenager. And I tell you, his testimony was so compelling, he lived out his faith in the resurrection, his faith in the gospel so compellingly that I couldn't help but take seriously the gospel that he proclaimed and so some think that um, because the word for the dead can, can just as relevant or just as acceptably be or correctly be translated because of the dead, same word, that it may very well be that Paul is talking about people who have gotten saved as the influ- because of the influence of people who have already passed on to heaven and that's what he's referring to. In either case, however, the point stands on its own, namely this, that whatever the reason that these people were being baptized, ultimately they're being baptized because they believe in the resurrection. Whether these are pagans who are practicing out their their pagan form of understanding of the resurrection, or if these are people who are coming to faith as a result of those who have already died, in both cases, they are being baptized because of the teaching of the resurrection. that's the point. And I'm not sure if either of these two interpretations hit the mark, but it's clear that Paul's trying to awaken the Corinthians to the reality of resurrection and the fact that when one truly believes in the resurrection, there will be practical consequences in the choices that we make and in the way we live. If we really believe in the resurrection, it'll show in our lives. The reason these people were being baptized was because they believed in resurrection. In this case, you might say their functional theology and their formal theology were consistent. They lived out their formal theology. And here's the problem in Corinth. They said, we believe Jesus rose again from the dead. And Paul is saying, then why don't you live like it? Why is there a disconnect between your formal theology and your functional theology? And what about us? Obviously, we would agree that the doctrine of the resurrection is true. That's our formal theology. We all all believe that, right? But how does that work out in practice? How does our belief that after we die, we'll face judgment, receive reward, spend eternity in fellowship with Christ and with one another and with those who have gone on before, how do those promises affect the way we live now? Do they have any effect? Does it affect the way we raise our children, the values we teach them, the ambitions that we encourage in them, and the kind of education that we will give them Does it affect the way we relate to the opposite sex in the workplace or how we invest our money and our time? Does it impact our leisure and hobby and entertainment choices or the way we choose to dress? Does it drive us to read the scriptures, pray without ceasing, share the gospel treasure with our lost acquaintances? What effect does the resurrection have on your life? That's Paul's question. And let me just insert here that disciplines like this should not be motivated by some artificial legalistic standard, but rather by joyful faith in the gospel's promise of resurrection. All of this is about the gospel. All of this is about the gospel. We know that because Paul says in verse 1, here we are, starting in verse 29. It's been several weeks since we were at verse 1, but look at what he says. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. This is the heart of the gospel. The promise of resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. The promise of resurrection ought to be the explanation for how we live. It certainly did for the Apostle Paul. And notice this question in verses 30 and 31. Verse 30, he says, Why are we also in danger every hour? You understand that question? What he's saying is, Why does it make sense that we willingly live in danger, we apostles and his comrades who were traveling with him, how does that make sense, that we would live in danger every hour if there is no resurrection? I affirm, brother, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. The promise of resurrection ought to be the explanation for how we live. Paul saying, because of the resurrection, I take up my cross daily and follow Christ. Hardly a day goes by when myself and my companions do not expect to be seized and led to execution. I mean, that wasn't the case all the time, but there were stretches of time in different cities where he went and he fully expected he would be thrown into jail or beheaded, which he eventually was, tradition tells us. This was so critical to Paul's theology. He wasn't living for today. He was living in today, but he was laying f- living for tomorrow. And this is the way he expected believers to live. Let me give you some examples of this. Turn back with me to Romans 8. This is the great 8, as the Puritans called it. Such a monumental text in the New Testament. In the middle of this monumental book, the New Testament. And listen to what he says, beginning with verse 31. What shall we say to those things, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, look for hints of his resurrection theology. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's, who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Here we go. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine. And notice, this is, this is how Paul lived or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, watch this, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. You know, I never understood that text until I started learning about modern-day martyrs. I'll never forget the first time I read That more people have, more Christians have died for their faith in Christ in the 20th century than what? Previous century? No. Than all of the previous centuries of church history combined. There aren't less people dying for their faith. There are far more dying for their faith than when Paul wrote this. We don't feel it because it's not us. But it was for Paul, and it was for those who believed Paul's message which he received from Jesus, the gospel. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered, I take that by the world, as nothing more than sheep. To be slaughtered. How do you live like that? How can you remain faithful in that kind of atmosphere? Now, granted, we don't live under that kind of oppression, but it is getting harder. And so I ask, what about us? That's the question we need to ask. What about us? The promise of the resurrection ought to be the explanation for our lives. And now turn with me again, not to 1 Corinthians 15, but one page past that, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. In other words, they were absolutely convinced this is the end. We don't know the circumstances. But here they are in Central Asia, and something happened. And they were so, they were in such a dire predicament. They believed in their hearts. It's over. God's plan for me is done. I'm dying today, tomorrow, this week, but soon. And why would God allow that to happen? Paul gives us the answer, keep reading. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in who? God, who raises the dead. This is God's school of suffering, right? This is God teaching his people death is not the end and death is not to be feared. Be faithful so that our trust would not be in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, keep reading verse 10, who delivered us from so great peril, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our, what's that last word? Hope. Say it again. Hope. On whom we have set our hope. It's our hope. You've got to understand, in, in American English, when we speak of hope, we think of Something we wish for. We're planning for. We hope it will happen. That's not true in biblical terminology. In biblical terminology, our hope is a settled conviction. Our hope is a settled conviction. Not because I believe it so much, but because God has promised it. Therefore, it is settled whether I believe it or not. But if I set my hope on God's promise, then I can be absolutely confident that my hope is in the right place because God's promises will never fail. We just read a minute ago my favorite verse in the New Testament. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. All things. God will not withhold anything from us. He gave us his son. We can trust him in all things and for all things. You see, beloved, the reason Paul lived like he did was because of his hope. Yesterday, my sister called me. And uh, she lives in Florida. And we just got talking about life and and uh, antiques that have been passed down from my grandmother to her. And uh, one of the antiques, she said, uh, and, and we hadn't talked about any of this stuff in years, and I was saying, okay, whatever happened to that rocking chair? Oh, well, aunt, somebody has that. Well, what happened to this antique, whatever? Oh, I have that. Oh. And it was, remember, had these nostalgic moments of memory um, a, a little boy growing up in my, or, or being around my grandparents a lot, being in their house. And she says, you know, and I have, I have Nanny's hope chest. I said, oh, that's cool. I didn't know she had one. I said, my, you know, Chris has her grandmother's hope chest, Grandma Bridgman. Got her hope chest. It's sitting right in our living room. And she said, yeah, mine's sitting in our living room like a coffee table. It's made of cedar. Yep, same as mine. Has an initial on it. K for Kirk or for the other one, B for Bridgman. And I hung up the phone and I thought, a hope chest. I had already written this message. And I got thinking, what was a hope chest for? And someone may have to correct me on this. I meant to look this up. But as I remember it, I, I, I asked her, by the way, what's in your hope chest? And she said, oh, just some, some antique uh, china. What's in your hope chest? And I said, oh, I think Chris has a, an old... Crazy quilt, they call it. You know, they took fabric from the children's clothing and they cut it up after it was wore out and they made, you know, quilts out of them and it had names of family members stitched in and it had 1906 embroidered into the fabric and it's an heirloom. But that's not what hope chests were originally intended for. They weren't storage, like most, mostly they are today. Back in the day, when hope chests were really meaningful... It went like this. You had a hope chest because more than likely it's because you had a daughter. And you were preparing for her to get married. And so it may very well be that the daughter's mom would put her wedding gown in there for her daughter to wear someday. And other things that would fit in the chest. As mom and dad had money, they would buy things for the daughter's future relationship with her husband, her own family and they would put it in the hope chest because their hope was that their daughter would grow and get married and have a life of her own, and then all of these things would be presented to her. And I thought, wow, what a perfect picture here. The daughter would look at that chest and say, someday all that's going to be mine, and all that goes with it. The question is, what's in your hope chest? You know what was in Paul's hope chest? The glory of knowing Christ. The glory of seeing Christ. The glory of having fellowship with him unendingly. The glory of the eternal reward which he said was something that far outweighed any amount of suffering in this life That was his hope. It was a settled conviction. In fact, don't turn. Let me turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And listen to this. Now, faith is the assurance of things, what? Hoped for. I never understood that passage when I was young. Because I thought, why would, you, why would you have faith in something you wish for? That sounds like a, a fragile, vacuous, empty faith. That's not what he's talking about. Faith is the assurance of what is hoped for because your hope is in God's promises, which never change. That is the object of our hope. It's the rock, it's the ballast of our ship that keeps us upright when the storms of life come against us. It is that which never, ever changes. Paul had his hope set there. The reason he lived like he did was because of the object of his hope. People set their hope on all kinds of things. And here's an important thing we need to remember or learn today. The object of our hope will always become the object of our worship. The object of our hope will always become the object of our worship. It'll be the thing that we think about. It's the thing that we long for. It'll become what we most often dream of and delight in and sacrifice for. I'll give you three examples. If your hope is in making a lot of money, you're going to find yourself often just daydreaming. When your mind slips into neutral, it's going to find its way back to money. And how your business can prosper more. And how your bank account, your bottom line, and your portfolio can increase You're likely to become a workaholic and sacrifice things you should never sacrifice. Perhaps your marriage, your family, your children, your church. You know what that's called? It's called worship. If your hope is getting married, then that's what's going to dominate your dreams, your idle thoughts. You'll read books and watch movies that glamorize romantic relationships, and you will gladly sacrifice biblical wisdom and precious family relationships, if necessary, to secure the relationship that you desire. You know what that's called? Worship. If your hope is in being healthy and living a long, happy life, then you will likely Give excess attention to your aches and pains, your diet, your exercise, your medications. And when you get sick, you will gladly spend all that you have and much of what you don't have in order to get well. You know what that's called? Worship. You could just apply this to almost every area of life. And why did Paul live like he did? It's because of what he worshipped. Not what he said he worshipped, but what he actually worshipped. He worshipped Jesus Christ. His hope was completely fixed upon the resurrection, because there he would finally get to see Christ. That's why he talked about Christ and to everyone he knew. That's why he gladly gave up health, his money, his reputation. It was because his life was ruled by the hope that he would one day have God who raises the dead. There's no other explanation for why he lived as he did. And Paul would not have us invent any other explanation for why he lived as he did. Look at verse 32. Uh, Back in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll get to that 2 Corinthians passage here in just a second. Verse 32, if from human motives or if from human desires or if from human ambition, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus, what did it profit me? What did that profit me? You see what he's saying, beloved? Beloved? Instead of rewards, applause, rewards and applause and money for which men risk their lives, Paul earns poverty and infamy in his day. And he asks, there's no resurrection. What profit is that? And why would I do that? That's dumb. If I'm not gaining anything, then pity me. Pity me. What do I stand to gain if there is no resurrection? Don't think that Paul had no self-interest in what he was doing. He had an enormous amount of self-interest. It just wasn't in this life. It was in the resurrection. And that's just the point, isn't it? If there is no resurrection then there is no good explanation for how Paul lived. But if God's promise of resurrection is true, then Paul's life of deprivation, rejection, beatings, imprisonment, betrayal, and suffering, all of that makes perfect sense. Because he was living for resurrection. It all makes perfect sense. Now understand, I don't think that all of us should experience all that Paul experienced. And I think part of the reason for that is we are still a country, as much as it's slipping from us, we are still a country that clings in large measure to what's called Judeo-Christian values. That was not the case in Greece or in Rome. And so our culture and our standard of Christianity, the culture hasn't slipped that far. And unfortunately, for much of the church, it's it's never going to separate very much because the church is slipping with it. And pray God that, that that's not true of us. But right now, the difference between the church or the way Christians should live, and especially here in the South, the way unbelievers live, there's a fairly close correlation. Close enough, in fact that one of the difficulties of evangelism here is that everybody thinks they're a Christian. I mean, after all, we have Christian values. We don't cheat, we don't smoke, we don't chew. You know all of that about, you know. But in Paul's day, that wasn't the case. Beatings, imprisonment, that was commonplace for him. And that may not be commonplace for us, but listen. There are going to be moments this week when you will have to make a decision, and you will either choose to be consistent, your functional theology will then kick in and be consistent with your formal theology, or you will turn your back on what you say you believe. In the interest of pleasing men, in the interest of gaining whatever it is your hope is actually in other than the resurrection. You will turn your back on God's word. You will turn your back on his truth. You will turn your back on Christ. It'll just be a small thing, maybe a small thing, but you'll do it. And you'll, you'll start to slip like the Corinthians did. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 4 this time, one more page to the right. I want you to see this because I want you to hear Paul's explanation of all of this in his own words. We're going to pick up with verse 16, but we're going to read through chapter 5, verse 11. Follow along with me now. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Now understand, this is Paul. In his situation, being persecuted, being betrayed, being beaten, being shipwrecked, therefore we do not lose heart. But though the outer man is decaying, that's his body, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction come on, Paul, are you kidding me? Momentary light affliction. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, that's his body, which is our house, is torn down, that is, if we are killed, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's resurrection. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because We do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. You know what that means? As down payment on the promise so that you will know that your hope is secure. Therefore, Being always of good courage. Really? Even even when people are mad at you? Even when people say you're some kind of religious fanatic? Even when people say, get out of my face, why do you people keep coming downtown and interrupting our dinner? Or our plans to party tonight? And we answer, we just want to tell you about Christ. Therefore, being always of good courage... And knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. You know what that means? Whether I'm in this earthly body or whether I'm in heaven, the ambition is the same. Please the Lord. For we must, appear be, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. There's Paul's explanation for why he lives the way he did. You see, I see two things here. I see two things here. The motivation for Paul relative to resurrection, number one. There is an eternal weight of glory reserved for me that is going to make all of my suffering look like nothing. I'm going to be so glad I was faithful on that day Because of the reward. It was like this. It was like the author of Hebrews' description of Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of God. He didn't want the cross. I mean, for him personally. He didn't need the cross for him personally. But do not think that it was easy for him He suffered, and he knew he would suffer. Then why did he do it? For the joy set before him. I think that's the same thing with Paul. It's the joy that is ahead, not now, but later. It's the joy that motivates me to live like this. And secondly, not only the joy, but it's the fear of God. You say, Paul feared God? You bet he did. He didn't fear God. Like a man fears a judge who is going to condemn him. He feared him. Brett and I got into a conversation about this. How do you explain this kind of fear? Best I could come up with was if you ever get a chance, the space shuttle's not launching anymore, but if you could get down to Cape Canaveral for whatever their next launch is and get a ticket and just be there to watch that rocket. This massive thing, the explosion, the fire, the rumbling of the ground. And though you will not fear that it's going to kill you, you will fear. And that's why you're there. (laughs) Because it is awesome. That term should be used for things, only things that are awesome. God is the ultimate awesome. He knows that one day his deeds are all going to be weighed. And so let's keep in balance, beloved. What is the motivation for a holy life? It is the joy that is set before me, yes. But it is also the fear of God. This God who promised he will not judge me nevertheless will examine my life. He will examine my life. This is why Paul lived like he did. You see, the only explanation for Paul's life was that his hope was in God who raises the dead and will reward our faithfulness to him with an eternal weight of glory that far exceeds all comparison. That was the prophet that Paul lived for. That was the profit that Paul lived for. It was the motive that drove his choices, his investments, his relationships. You too are living for profit, and so am I. The question only is, what is that profit? What is our hope? What is in your hope chest? Someone may ask, okay, Paul, but if you get to the end, it turns out all to be a hoax. What if in the end it all proves to be a lie? If Paul were that Cistercian abbot, he might say, that's okay. Live like a Christian anyway because holiness and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves, even without the promise of reward. But that's not what the Apostle Paul would say. What would his philosophy of life be if there was evidence that his hope of resurrection was false? Look at what he says in verse 35. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, if there is no resurrection, I shouldn't be living like this. There's a happier way to live. There's an easier way to live. If there is no resurrection, let's just eat and drink. And you know what? That's the way most people live. And dare I say, that's the way so many professing Christians live. Aside from coming to church, maybe checking into their ministry once a week or so, you look at their life, I mean, if you could, but look at your own. You look at their life and find out they're just eating and drinking. They're just, I mean, they're not doing anything bad. That's not, that's not. Shameless partying, let's just eat and drink. What, do you, what are we gonna do today? I don't know, what, what, what's for dinner? I mean, our greatest ambition is what are we gonna eat? What are we gonna drink? i love to eat. By the way, did you notice that phrase in your Bible is in a different typeface than the rest of the text? There's a reason for that. It's because this is a quotation from the Old Testament. It always piques my interest when I see that. And so I tracked it down. It comes from Isaiah 22, verses 12 and 13. You've got to have some context here. The chapter, uh, chapter 22 of Isaiah, God had been calling his people to grieve and mourn over their sin and to return to the Lord because they had drifted from him. But they were unresponsive. And so the prophet writes, Isaiah 22, 12, Therefore, in that day the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping and to wailing, to the shaving of the head and to wearing sackcloth. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, the killing of cattle and the slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink tomorrow we die this is isaiah quoting those people that was their slogan let us eat we hear what the lord is saying we hear the call of repentance the prophet is driving us crazy with this call to repentance judgment is coming so how do we respond let's just eat and drink let's have a party. Let's kill the fatted calf, let's make good of the fruit that we have while we have time to enjoy it. Judgment's coming, there's nothing we can do about that. And the prophet is saying, don't you realize God is calling you to change? Not to ignore the plea to repent, but to actually repent. That's where your joy is going to be found, in repenting. There are things in your life, there are idols in your heart from which you need to repent. Repent. And if you do, all of God's covenantal promises to you will be yes and amen through Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul would say anyway. But you won't. You just keep living. You just keep going to work, watching TV, eating and drinking and loving and hurting and all the things that humans do And there is no change. And like the prophet Isaiah, the apostle Paul is trying to communicate how foolish it is to live without considering the fact that one day we will be raised to life where we will have to give an account of our lives before the face of God Almighty. Oh, how dreadful that day will be for us if it is revealed that we set our hope in this life on temporal pleasure, comfort, power, acceptance, and ease. How grieved we will be on that day if we look back realizing too late that the way we lived this life made perfect sense without the resurrection. You say, are you talking about these people losing their salvation? Not at all. I'm talking about what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says this. Now, verse 12, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day, same day, resurrection, the day of judgment will show it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You say, I thought there was not going to be any tears in heaven. Yeah, after judgment day, there'll be no tears. But I think on that day, when we reality strikes us about how foolishly we may have lived, it will cause us grief. And the Lord will be gracious, granted. But we will have wished we had done what we knew God had called us to do. You see, if we really believe the resurrection, if we really believe that it's important, uh, that it, it has been appointed for man once to die, and after that the judgment, if we really believe that God loves us so much that he united us with Christ in his death and his resurrection, then our lives are going to bear evidence of that belief, that eternal hope. Our lives will bear evidence of that belief in the choices that we make. But here's another question. What about those whose faith in resurrection is weak? What if their formal theology and functional theology do not really match up? And so he gives us, number two, the evidence of weak faith and resurrection. And just a couple of minutes on this will do. Verses 33 and 34, Paul has a word for such people. Look at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. The word deceived here means to be seduced. Seduced. To be led astray. Paul delivers his judgment here upon the matter, and this is what he says The low standard of morality in your church, that's the Church of Corinth, is inextricably connected to your your disbelief in the resurrection. The fact that you have a weak understanding of the resurrection, and there were some, verse 12 says, How do some among you say there is no resurrection? Paul's saying, the reason I'm having to deal with the immorality in the church is because of this. You don't believe there's going to be a resurrection. Some of you say you do. Some of you say that there isn't any resurrection, so we don't have to worry about it. In either case, the equation produces the same results. The reason there's immorality among you The reason that some of you men are dabbling with pornography this week is because you don't really believe in resurrection. You don't really, in that moment of choice. That choice to click or to not click is not governed by the promise of resurrection. You're just living for the moment. And how is that any different? Than your unbelieving coworkers, whom you claim to someday hope to lead to Christ. If we really believe the resurrection promise, if we really long to please Christ, serve Christ, worship Christ, and one day see Christ with our own eyes, it will change the way we live. In a number of significant ways, there will be a marked difference between the way we live and the way our unbelieving friends and co-workers live. There will be some things that they say, well, oh, I'll never do that. Maybe like go to church, read their Bible, uh, knock on people's door, to, I don't know. And, and, and you'll say, but I love to do those things. And there are other things that they say, you know what we love to do? We love to do this, that, and the other. Come to the bar with us tonight. We're going to go hang out. I mean, we're on a business trip. I mean, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Come with us. And you're going to say, no. The things I used to love, I now hate. And the reason I hate them, and the reason I love other things that you hate, is because of Jesus Christ and the promise of resurrection in Him. It'll have a difference, it'll make a difference. And here's the thing, beloved, if we are not intentionally limiting how much of the world we let into our homes via our computers, iPods, phones, television, whatever, books, then we're failing to hear Paul's warning. Here it is. Bad company corrupts good morals. Some of the brothers in Corinth were failing to sift the world's philosophy through the grid of Scripture. They were being seduced into believing things that were inconsistent with a biblical worldview. And their tolerance of immorality, their divisiveness, and and, and their inappropriate use of Christian liberty was evidence of it. Paul's prescription? I love Paul. Sometimes he's not gentle apostle, meek and mild. Sometimes he doesn't follow all of the uh, nank prescriptions on how to bring truth to bear on people. Here's what he says. Sober up and stop sinning. Thank you, Paul. (laughs) That was was gentle and compassionate. I think Paul would say this is not a time for gentleness and compassion. Sober up. Become sober-minded and stop sinning. He wanted them to understand this was not a liberty issue. This is a sin issue. Sober up. Paul was speaking as to drunken men sleeping under the seduction of sensualism, hedonism, and intellectual pride. I would dare say those are three things that men and women struggle with in Fort Worth, Texas. Same as they did in Corinth. Just different vehicles for getting there. Sensualism, hedonism, and intellectual pride. Paul's saying, Shake off the seduction and return to the joy of living in the glory of the promises of the resurrection. And beloved, this gets really practical. It's really practical. Paul's warning that, here's three things Paul's warning that a weak belief in resurrection will open our lives to the seduction of worldliness. Secondly, a weak belief in resurrection will tempt us to justify sin. And thirdly, a weak belief in resurrection will hinder our knowledge of God. You know why? Because the people who are seducing us don't know him, and we like them. Paul says there's no excuse for that in the Christian life. Some of the people you're being seduced by have, watch this, verse thirty. For. They have no knowledge of God. Stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. Who's the some he's referring to? I believe he's referring to the people who are seducing them. They have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And then we have to ask what about, what about us? You want to get real practical? What are our favorite movies? Our favorite actors, singers, musicians, sports heroes, talk radio hosts, politicians. You fill in the blank. Here's the thing. Many of them don't know God. Why are you following them? Why are you pushing them to the fore? Why do you spend so much more time with them than you do with God's Word, God's people, with God Himself? Many of them don't know God. Should we enjoy being under their influence? Are there some changes that need to be made in how we live? And so let's ask ourselves the question, shall we? Can my life be explained apart from the promise of resurrection? Boy, there are some people that I know. When I look at them and the way they live, I think, God, make me more like that. Cause me to love Jesus like they love Jesus. When I look at, at my grandfather, when I remember my grandfather. He was an Arminian, and I loved him. And I think back, God, regardless of his theology, give me his love for Christ. Give me his passion for your word. Give me his love for people. And you probably know people like that. That's why so often the Apostle Paul tells us to mark people like that and follow their example. We need heroes. We need people who will practically live it out before us. But even as we see it live before us, it's one thing to admire it, it's another thing to make the practical choices that I need to make for my home to make it significantly different from that of my unbelieving neighbors and friends. The question is Is my functional theology in line with my formal theology? What practical changes does God want me to implement in my life in light of the promise that one day the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout? with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet blast of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So then we shall always be with the Lord. What changes need to take place in my life so that my decisions, my family activities, whatever it is, line up with that? Now. Before we say the amen, let me give you the wrong answer to that. The wrong answer to that is, I'm going to stop watching TV. Now, that may need to happen, but that should not be your first answer. Your first answer is, God, tomorrow morning, I'm clearing my calendar or I'm getting up early. Way early. Because we need to talk. God, I don't love you like I once did. I don't read your word and delight in it like I once did. I don't talk to other people about it like I once did. Because I have allowed other seductive influences to draw me away. And if nothing else happens in my life this morning... I want to be with you. Teach me to love Jesus more. Show me his glory. Show me my need. Show me my sin. Reveal the idols in my heart. Do whatever it takes to change my heart so that my future orientation would not be all about me, but it would be all about Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's the first answer. And then anything else that happens in your life, any other changes that you make, will come as overflow from your passion for Christ, your love for the gospel, and your deep desire to be pleasing to the Lord. Beloved, the truth about what we really believe relative to the resurrection is revealed not so much by what we say we believe, but by how we live. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your grace to take these things in and to evaluate our lives, our homes, our marriages, how we're raising our children, every practical area of life, And we want to make it our ambition in all things to be pleasing to you. Father, don't, don't let us just go home and sleep this truth away or eat this truth away or entertain this truth away. But give us the grace to discipline ourselves to consider the deep realities of these truths so that our lives would be changed to reflect more of your glory, to magnify more of the excellencies of Christ, that we might show the world what God is like by the way that we live, what Christ is like, what the gospel is like. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with a love of Christ. Fill us with a passion for your word. And may those things rule us as we live today. And until we meet again, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.